Dear voters, I have to confess, I'm feeling a little depressed. I'm six weeks in and I still haven't taken over the world. I've tried everything I can to address my depression. I've surrounded myself with motivational posters, you know the type, together we can build the great wall, all it takes is compulsory labor. Or a single recipe for Kentucky Fried Chicken can lead to the death of a billion birds. But they didn't help. So I've started dipping into the suggestions bin. Eli, for example, suggested that stories were nice, but that perhaps I should try explaining things through music. That, I thought, was a great idea. So here goes. The government will pay for median treatment costs. If you spend more than the median, you pay. But if you spend less, you get up to 5% back. This will push down the median costs while improving care. Wow, Eli. I have to say, that was very moving. It really brought things home. But somehow, I suspect, it won't be enough. It occurred to me that this could just be my fault. Or it could just be reality slapping me in the face. But then I realized it might have nothing to do with me or reality. It might just be that you people aren't pulling your weight. If you want me to realize my dreams of a dynamic world in which people can realize the potential in their dreams without needing to live in fear, a world in which I coincidentally have absolute power, then you need to step it up. But maybe I could do my part. You see, Josh, yes, that Josh, emailed me again and said I was just being too depressing. He insisted if I just used a funny story that everything would be better. However, at the same time, Yitz told me that he wants more talkie and less story. I wasn't going to listen to Yitz, but then he gave my campaign its first ever donation, the microphone I'm using now. And well, I never said I couldn't be bought. So I'm listening to Yitz. So here goes. This is the new format. I'm going to discuss top news events of the week, give a little background, tell you what I'd do if catastrophe struck and I became president, and then I'll read something short, a part of a book, and we'll all move on with our lives. If you don't like this format, tell me. Your voice will be heard, as long as you bring more to the table than Yitz did. Naturally, given the bazillion shows out there that cover the news, you could ask, why should I listen to this guy drone on for 30 minutes? That is a fair question. In fact, my wife asked me that on our very first date. I'd like to think the answer lays in my cutting analysis, sharp prose, or subtle command of humor. But sadly, I know none of these are legitimate reasons to listen. No, you should listen for one reason and one reason only. Because if you listen to me, you will know that however bad things might be, I could make them worse. Okay, let's take a look at the news of the week that drew my quasi-presidential eye. How's this for a list? The killing of Soleimani, the Mexican police chief was arrested, the attempted massacre in Muncie, New York, the escape of Carlos Gosson, and the wildfires in Australia. That sounds like a wonderful list with which I can play the role of politician, confidently deciding what should be done while knowing next to nothing about the issues involved. Let's start with Carlos Gosson. Dear Carlos is the human embodiment of globalization. He is a Lebanese, French, Brazilian citizen who simultaneously rescued a French car company and, just because he could, two other car companies in one of the most ethnically exclusive countries there is, Japan. He was so successful, the Japanese even put him on a postage stamp. 
But as has been the trend lately, the Japanese decided to move away from globalism. So out came the pitchforks and Carlos was arrested on, in the scheme of things, some ticky-tack charges. After weeks spent in solitary confinement and over 130 days of interrogation, many without a lawyer, he was released to home confinement. The problem was, he wasn't going down easy. Japan has a 99% conviction rate, but his defense seemed to be doing a pretty good job at making him look at least somewhat innocent. If the government failed to convict him, then they would look bad, and if they succeeded, they might look even worse. So when Carlos hatched a plan to escape, I think the Japanese just chose to look the other way. It was the best option they had. So what happens now? Well, Lebanon just recently booted their prime minister. The place is in a state of total chaos. They are in search of unifying leadership. And Carlos, well, after Carlos was arrested, billboards and posters appeared around Lebanon proclaiming, we are all Gosen. That's pretty unifying. And it just so happens Carlos is a highly capable person. Nissan has really struggled since they canned him. And, well, he's only a little corrupt by local standards. So maybe dear Carlos can run for prime minister of Lebanon. They could certainly do worse. And then, if globalism becomes popular again, maybe he could run for prime minister again of Israel. After all, it couldn't be any harder to simultaneously manage two Middle Eastern neighbors than it could be to simultaneously rescue a French and a Japanese car company, right? Of course, Carlos isn't the only topic in the news. A Mexican police chief was arrested in connection to the massacre of part of a Mormon community in northern Mexico. I won't even mention his name. At this point, Mexican police chiefs should generally be followed by the words, arrested. Mexico is in a state of chaos that makes Lebanon look good. Consider this, over 125,000 people have been killed in the Mexican drug war since 2006. 125,000 people over 14 years, 13 years really. To put that in context, 13,000 Israelis and Palestinians have been killed in their conflict since 1948. I mean, wow. It is so bad that in October, when the federal police arrested one cartel leader, they then promptly unarrested him. Why? The cartel surrounded the arresting team, rounded up the soldiers' family at their barracks and their homes, publicly executed some soldiers, and started terrorizing the city he was arrested in. The government had no choice but to surrender. Mexico is a mess. But a lot of what is going on is our fault. After all, our drug users provide the cash to the cartels that have taken over law enforcement in the country. Wearing my presidential hat, I think we can and should do something about it. When I was a kid, I was surrounded by drug users. My parents brought in kids with drug and alcohol addiction, and through methods that varied from person to person, my parents helped these kids. My father provided inspiration. He believed in these kids and their ability to lead meaningful lives, and he taught them to believe in themselves. And my mother, who passed away this year, provided structure, order, and management. I believe it was because of our exposure to these kids that none of my siblings ever used. We saw how much damage the drugs had done, and we saw how hard it was to recover, and we saw the road using would lead us down. And that leads to my policy recommendation in the drug wars. I believe if you want to use, you should have access to inexpensive, high-quality drugs. They'd be regulated like any other product. I wouldn't even want to tax them. State governments are already addicted to cigarettes. The key is, in order to get drugs, you'd need to get a license. 
I'd make getting the license easy. Just spend four weeks attending the equivalent of Alcoholics Anonymous for your drug of choice, or two weeks in a rehab facility, or one week in a prison with drug-related offenders. Just see people trying to escape their addiction or suffer the consequences of failing to do so. Then once you know the consequences, you can choose to step into the abyss. When you get your license, you'll be given a dispenser tied to your fingerprints or other biometric data. The idea is simple. We'll make it a little hard for you to become an illegal distributor. We don't need much. After all, others can be licensed in one week flat. With this, pushers would go away. There'd be no valuable follow-through market due to the cheap, high-quality goods available at your local dispensary. But I think the legal market would also be pretty small. After exposure to those on the other end of the usage tunnel, only those people with a death wish will step down the road of abuse. There are, of course, many who will still step down that road. And that's why my parents' first step was convincing kids that they had value. Getting there will have to be a topic for another time. We could extend this concept to anything that has a syntax. Want to buy liquor? Just spend an hour with a driver who's committed a homicide while drunk. We can make that counseling a routine part of sentencing in DUI homicide cases. Cigarettes? Talk to a cancer patient. You get the point. This wouldn't rescue Mexico, and it wouldn't rescue us, but it'd be a step in the right direction in both cases. Well, so far this episode isn't exactly a giggle fest, so let's move on to the attempted massacre in Muncie, New York. This attack reflects a growing trend of violent anti-Semitism in the U.S. and beyond. Personally, I think it is simply a return to the norm. Many of my co-religionists have called for the denouncement of anti-Semitism. But that is kind of like complaining to a teacher when a bully smacks you. It can work short-term, but it does nothing to change the bully's perspective. It can even make it worse. You become the teacher's pet. The difference is that the haters in democracy can easily and lawfully replace the teacher. The same goes for the designation of a hate crime. Attempted mass murder is attempted mass murder. A special designation isn't going to make people who want to kill Jews think twice about it. It will just reinforce their hatred by proving we're actually in control of the school system. I want to take another approach. Instead of trying to legally shut down Jew haters, I want to help them understand and achieve their true aims. These haters fall into two broad groups, the vampire haters and the Borg haters. The vampire haters hate Jews because we control the banks, the media, and if I get elected president, the government itself. They think we are taking what is rightfully theirs, bloodsuckers draining the vitality and life out of non-Jewish society. Sometimes they take this quite literally. Some vampire haters claim and even believe that Jews make matzah from the blood of Christian children. Really, you guys need to think things through a little bit more. After all, consider this. Jews are only 0.2% of the population. As many of you might be mathematically challenged, that means out of every 1,000 people, two are Jewish. Given these numbers, we can't control the world. Instead, we've got to concentrate our efforts on particular countries. We have to focus on those places where a decent number of us live and where the rule of law enables us to extend our scary tentacles. Basically, you've got Canada, the U.S., England, Germany, and France. Any place else, and we wouldn't have the structures to control the far greater populations that surround us, or we wouldn't have the numbers to use those structures. So, you've got Western Europe, the U.S., and Israel under the Jewish thumb, and then you have the rest of the world basically free. Africa, China, India, Russia, you get the point. So let me ask you a simple question. Where would you rather live? Uganda or the U.S.? Canada or Cameroon? 
If you didn't pick the U.S. and Canada, then you're an irredeemable idiot. And if you did pick them, then you know that the best places to live are the places supposedly dominated by Jews. Put another way, the countries we supposedly control are the most successful countries in the world, including for ignorant people like you. So rather than being vampires, maybe you should think of us as something closer to blood donors, using our skills to improve the world around us. Does this mean you should go out and hug a Jew? No, at least not until you take a bath. Oh, and for those who take me too seriously, Jews don't get along or agree on pretty much anything. That's why, despite many high-profile individuals and families, the Jewish people have never managed to form the great octopus of global oppression. We can barely manage to run our own country. That said, the rule of law, a system whereby hard-working and ambitious people can succeed, even if they are Jewish, is a good thing for everybody, Jews and Jew-haters alike. Okay, what about the Borg-haters? Well, these guys hate Jews because they encroach on the neighborhoods in a flood of black hats and suits, like the Borg. These haters tend to be black residents of low-income neighborhoods in the greater New York area. Unlike the vampire haters, the Jews they hate are rarely at the top of any power structures. They live in crappy neighborhoods because they care more about studying ancient law books than they do about having a nice apartment or making a lot of money. When they do have money, they spend it on those ancient law books and paying other people subsistence salaries to study them as well. They're like monks with children. They're moving en masse into wonderful places like Jersey City because they don't have the money to move en masse into Santa Monica. But you should think twice before attacking these Jews. You see, they wear a uniform, just like the Nation of Islam. This is an indication that they have a shared general outlook. In other words, Borg haters, these Jews are disorganized now, but they are capable of tremendous coordination in the face of a threat. And even if you beat them, which you certainly can one-on-one, -on -one, all the violence will succeed in doing is driving down your local rents. And you guessed it, lower rents will bring ever more of these cheap Jews into your neighborhood. So what can you do? The answer is obvious. Educate your kids, drive up your local incomes, and soon enough, rents will follow. Then, the bored Jews will just move away. After all, they're only there for the cheap accommodation. One more thing, if you actually talk to these people, you might just discover that they aren't as Borg-like as it seems from the outside. Not only that, but they can be quite friendly, they'll never try to convert you, and many of them have excellent taste in fur hats. Speaking of turf wars, I think it's about time we talked about Qasem Soleimani. Now, the Middle East is a complex place, so I'm going to try and simplify it by explaining it in terms of Mr. and Mrs. Candidate Everyone. In our story, Mr. and Mrs. Candidate Everyone live in the same sprawling house. We don't really get along, though, so she has her wing and I have mine. It just so happens that my wing is a lot larger than hers. Well, about 40 years ago, she got really annoyed that I was running her part of the house. She went a little crazy, actually, and she started threatening to poison me. She'd walk around constantly shouting, Death to Candidate Everyone! Death to Candidate Everyone! It got a little creepy. Oh, and her lions were killing my dogs. Yes, we have lions. We're that kind of family. Then one day I was reviewing her credit card receipts and I discovered she'd been buying some unusual items. Centrifuges, uranium, you get the idea. Not only that, but she brought some pretty impressive attack lines and let them loose right outside her wing of the house. So I decided, as one does, to take away her credit cards. I thought it was pretty reasonable given her clearly stated intent and the kinds of things she'd been buying. At first, it seemed to work well. She started talking all nice and pleasantly. She even lowered the death to candidate everyone's to a constant mutter. So I loosened up. I tried to reach some sort of accommodation. 
We agreed she'd stop with the centrifuges and the uranium, at least for now, and I'd let her have her credit cards back. I'd even drop off $400 million right on her living room floor. But then there were those darn receipts again, this time for long-range missiles capable of hitting my wing of the house directly. This time, I cut off her credit cards again, and her bank accounts, and her cash supply, and she started pulling these little tantrums. She broke my cameras, burned down my study, attacked the FedEx delivery guy, and made the housekeeper to take credit for the whole thing. She even started dating a guy named Vladimir, and her lines were creating absolute havoc. But I let her have her tantrum. I mean, I kept the money and I hacked her computer, but I didn't do anything else. Not that she's contained. She can barely feed her lions and her house cats here, Persian cats naturally, but she's still trying to kill me. And somehow, she keeps buying centrifuges. Oh, and she's back to shouting, death to candidate everyone. Basically, she isn't going to move out, and she isn't going to back down, and I can't possibly kick her out of the house. Her room is like a fortress. Sometimes I think she wants me to attack her, just so her house cats don't team up with some of her lions and rip her apart. But then this week, she crossed a line. Her lead lion killed one of my puppies. After everything else, that really, really pissed me off. It was the lion that broke the candidate's back. So I killed her lead lion. And now we're waiting for what comes next. The question is, what else can I do? How else can I control the situation? Well, one answer might be to get out of this analogy. Instead of it being Mr. Everyone encroaching on Mrs. Everyone's wing of a house, the locals need to think Mrs. Everyone is the one who doesn't belong. We need to convince your house cats and even some of her lions that they'd be better off with a change in leadership. Killing Soleimani doesn't accomplish this, but something else might. You see, Mrs. Everyone has a Kurdish problem. If I invite President Barzani, the leader of the autonomous Kurdish region of Iraq, to take over his own part of the house, right next to Mrs. Everyone's, then the whole dynamic of the fight will change. Barzani likes me. Mrs. Everyone hates him. But his part of the house can be pretty nice. If Mrs. Everyone keeps acting the way she does, I can help Barzani build an oil pipeline leading through Jordan and the little Satan Israel. And then I can provide arms to the Kurdish state, eventually including arms meant to be smuggled into Iran, which has a significant Kurdish population. Then I could start granting Barzani part of Mrs. Everyone's own wing. Bit by bit, I can use Barzani to make Mrs. Everyone look weaker and weaker while showing everybody in the neighborhood the benefits of being my friend. I think it's a pretty good plan. Okay, the final news item is the Australian wildfires. These are widely being blamed on climate change. Of course, Australia has long had huge fires, and so far this isn't the biggest we know of. It certainly isn't the deadliest. Up until now, I've been avoiding the scientific debate around climate change. And I'm not going to jump in with both feet now. The fact is, no matter which side I come in on, I will convince nobody. So instead, I'm just going to ask a question. Let's assume humankind can change global temperatures. Let's say we could cool the world by developing special high-altitude particulates, and we could warm it by emitting as much greenhouse gas as possible. Okay, so assuming we can program our global thermostat, what temperature would we want? And more importantly, why? Before we jump into the warming is causing wars and mass death argument, consider that in the 2010s, the decade just ended, there was about a 75% drop in deaths from natural disasters versus the average for the past 100 years, and there was a 50% drop in deaths from war from the average of the prior 50 years, and that excludes the world war. And lastly, the extreme global poverty rate is now at 10%. In 1990, it was 36%. Reading the news, it'd be reasonable to imagine that we're about to drop off a cliff, but so far, the apocalypse isn't happening. 
So back to the question, what temperature would we want and why would we want that temperature? I think it's the answer to that question, not the scientific one, that truly explains our varied approaches to the issue of climate change. Now, yes, I didn't agree to get rid of all of the writing, but I will shorten it up. So here's this week's story. I ghost wrote it back in 2014, but some might consider it appropriate for today's day and age. I leave the commentary up to others. I do want to add that this particular dictator, the one I worked with, liked to stereotype people. If you're one of the offended groups, I apologize. I'm just reading what my client wanted me to write. The Little Fuchsia Book, Chapter 1 Government by Clowns One of the reasons I've always looked up to men like Mao, Gaddafi, and Khomeini is that they get to produce their little red or little green books. You basically get to assemble this guide to life and it can be as crazy as you want and it doesn't really matter because people have got to read it. It may be forced, but this is a kind of validation. A validation that what you're doing is about more than just power. It's about ideas. I'm one of the world's few remaining tin pot dictators and I've always wanted to follow in these men's footsteps. But until now, I've never found the time to actually write my own little colored book. I have a problem with procrastination. There was a time when this book would have been a great commercial success. People would have had no choice but to buy it. But with the Arab Springs and the various democracy movements and the such, that time has passed. If I tried to force this drivel I'm about to share with you on my people, I'd probably face an open revolt. I like being a tin pot dictator. So I'll write the book, but nobody is going to have to read it. Instead, I'm going to seek validation the capitalist way and try to get you to actually buy this crap. With that introduction, I bring you The Little Fuchsia Book. Chapter 1, Government by Clowns. I'm not about to reveal my identity. If I did, sanctions would prevent you from buying my book. And with a fracking boom, oil and gas revenues are down, and I need the money. People have often asked why people like me seem to be clowns. We dress funny, do weird things, etc., etc., etc. You've probably seen me on TV and thought, that guy is insane. But before you write me off, consider that my budget is balanced, all the violence I'm involved with is expected, and we have a truly unified society. 100% of the people vote for me, and 100% have jobs. In my opinion, and by my country's laws, if you don't have a job and get behind our great leader, me, you die. But behind all the apparent success and joviality, there's a greater truth at hand. There is an immutable law of nature at play. I'm going to call it the first law of Fuchsia. It is, wisdom is inversely proportional to success in government. Bear with me. After all, I am an international clown. You're probably some serious academic who's been told to read this book to further your career in journalism or international relief or some such drivel. I can't imagine any normal people reading this. So let's assume, for the purpose of this exercise, that you are wise and I am an idiot. You probably resent and can't understand why a joker like me is a whole country while all you get is a $12,000 a year stipend to attend Columbia University School of Journalism. It isn't fair, and you know that if you were in my shoes, things would go so much better for my people. Now, I do have a bias towards idiots being one myself, but I can hire lots of smart people. And so I did, privately, of course. They had to violate sanctions that can work for me. And I asked them a question. Why is it that clowns like me run governments? Well, I actually asked them two questions. First, why do clowns like me run societies? And second, why do wise people like you run societies into the ground? I mean, when was the last time a decent urban university was located in a good neighborhood? These well-meaning people run their local clowns into the ground. 
My hired guns crunch numbers and use databases and complex big data queries and try to ant studies and all sorts of stuff. This research would have cost the U.S. billions, but I got a really good deal from them. And for a few million bucks, they told me the first law. But they also explained it to me so I could explain it to you. Now, bear with me. There's a huge amount of data and study behind this law. It is no longer in legitimate contention. It is more than what lay people would call a theory. Just accept that, and this will be easier. The explanation goes something like this. The problem wise people have is that they think they can fix everything if they can just manage everybody else's lives. They are, after all, wiser than the average clown. But because of communications theorems and distribution intelligence theorems and black work theorem and such, they really can't manage everybody else's lives. In fact, the clowns they rule get miserable and uppity when they try. Unwise people, on the other hand, tend to have something you might call humility. They let their people work out more of their own affairs. I wasn't really happy with this answer. I mean, I'm an unwise person who doesn't let anybody do anything I don't like, and I have no truck with humility. As I mentioned before, I like being a tinbuck dictator. All of this might explain the widespread poverty and desperation in my domain, but I digress. The first law of Fuchsia stands. Wisdom is inversely proportional to success in government. Deal with it. I lied. There is one more news item. As a politician, I have to do this every once in a while. But I deny lying. That is also my responsibility as a politician. There was a study that showed kids who drank full fat milk were significantly less likely to be obese than kids who didn't. My own kids drink full fat milk for this reason. We find it far more satisfying, and so the kids themselves don't need to fill up on as much other junk. Why is this relevant? Because when dealing with complex feedback-based systems like the human body, global climate, international politics, or personal fulfillment, sometimes what you put in isn't what you get out. Drinking fat doesn't necessarily make you fat. Doing what makes you happy doesn't necessarily make you happy. And having wise people in government doesn't necessarily lead to wise government. So if you think I'm wise, don't vote for me. Before we conclude, please give me your feedback about this new format. Email me with any news stories you find particularly interesting. And last but not least, share your fawning profiles of my candidacy with everyone you know. Thank you and have a fulfilling week.